Welcome to We're All Gonna Die and Other Fun Facts, a semi-regular, occasionally amusing, and rarely funny series of conversations on a random topic. This episode is entitled The Slingshot Vignettes, and it is about a new book of high bun poetry on, am I even pronouncing that correctly, on Alien Buddha Press. And our guest for this episode is someone who knows something about the slingshot vignettes and high bun poetry and also someone I just have not talked to in several years, (laughs) which is amazing. And I'm so happy to be talking to Tony Burfield. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm super stoked to be here. Yes. Well, and by here, we mean Zoom. And by for you here means Boulder, Colorado, correct? Well, uh, actually, outside of Boulder, up in the foothills, it's called Pinewood Springs, Colorado. So, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I do work in Boulder at the public library. All right. Which I wanted to get into later, but maybe we can get into now. So the sure. Slingshot Vignettes um, are about your northern Appalachian, eastern mountainous childhood. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's... Uh, it's about growing up in PA and in the up in the what they call now the PA wilds. Um, that didn't happen until after I left, but I like the I like the name, and I hope they stick with it because it is pretty wild up there. It is pretty wild up there, and so when you say you live in the foothills, I mean I, I you know, we're friends on Instagram, and you know, it's how we sort of reconnected, thankfully. Right. Yeah. So the one good thing social media has ever done. <laughs> Truly for me, it yes. kind of changed everything. So. Yes. Um, is that you also choose to live in a, a wild, somewhat remote, and you spend a lot of time in nature. I mean, your, your, ta- your weekends seem spectacular. Yeah, they really are. The views, at least, from those weekends. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I do a lot of hiking and mountaineering. And, uh, you know, my definitely my time growing up in PA, up in the mountains there, uh, you know, it drew me here. It's very, it's funny because it's very similar to the setup of our house in relation to the mountains is very similar to the house that I grew up in. And so... I don't know. I just feel comfortable. It's like the most comfortable place for me is like this orientation East West. um, And having the kind of being up on the side of a Valley, not down in the bottom and looking at the Hills. Yeah. That's uh, sort of my place. And there is such within, within the collection such a tremendous sense of place. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a, I, I think there's several threads that really unite this book really beautifully. Uh, we got to talk about form. We have to talk about adolescence and childhood, but can we talk about the environment first? Sure. Absolutely. You know, since we're, when, since we're there. <laughs> yeah. And right after a hundred episodes, I'm trying, trying to keep these things thematically <laughs> focused. We'll right see, on. you know, <laughs> see how far we get off base here yeah exactly um just the sense of place and granted you know i've lived in western pennsylvania for the last 20 years but i've been in sort of southwest pennsylvania right and i've sort of driven through i've never been to emporium or like 
Was that, is right that Cameron County? Yeah, Cameron County. And uh, where I grew up is actually right on the border, pretty much on the border of Cameron and McKean. And on the other side of the uh, ridge is Potter County. So they're, they all kind of converge right there. And that, that's where I grew up. Just like literally like one of the most isolated areas in the state, I think, for PA. You know, very close to the Quihanna area, which is technically like the, the point there is like the farthest from any other road in the state so you can like get out there and be like in the middle of no really in the middle of nowhere although there's a lot of fracking wells around there nowadays i think yeah which is yeah 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 i mean it's the last well yeah i mean that's the last gas with fossil fuels right yeah you know if if we could have gotten to that by now we would have gotten to that stuff by now and the right. fact that you have to do something that labor intensive right. to get to it means we're kind of weak right. fossil fuel. I don't know. Yeah, but. yeah. And I can't complain about it too much. My grandfather worked for Columbia Gas his whole life. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it wasn't for that, like, uh, I probably, I don't know, I'd probably be dead from opioids or something by now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he like held up the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and I, you know, I'm not like pro fossil fuels or anything, but I see that that uh, gave me the opportunities that I've had. So yeah. I, I do appreciate it in that way. And I like my natural gas furnace, I will say. It was a warm day. It was a warm, it was a global warming February day in Pittsburgh, but still, right. I, I will love my natural gas furnace. But, right. but no, I, I, I think... I mean, there is the social adolescent here, but I mean, for me, reading these poems, and even I was, I was just, you know, within the last hour, just spending time with the book, prepping for this, this conversation. Cool. And the, <laughs> yeah, and the exist, and the work of pleasure. I mean, it's like, I don't, you know, I only do things that I really like that I want to like, I'm going to read this book a awesome. third time for this podcast. You know what I mean? Like, and it was for the blurb once when the actual paper copy came and today I read it for the third time. Awesome. And just, and yeah, it was still, it's delightful. It's great. Um, the, the, the presence of the wild. Right. Yeah. And like awesome. what that kind of childhood is. And which for me is fascinating because I grew up in New Jersey, which there are no woods. It's just undeveloped land. <laughs> it's investment opportunities that haven't been realized yet. Right. And the woods are where you go to get killed. You know, I had a satanic panic childhood. Some yeah. wild places right where either bodies were dumped, people were straight up murdered or Satan worshipers right. in the woods next to my elementary school. Right. Yeah. had their black mass i remember having that that conversation in like third or fourth grade right with yeah, the teacher like... <laughs> leading the conversation that there were satanists in the woods next to the school <laughs> you didn't go in the woods right for me it was the roll the roller skating rink where the the satanist van would park and <laughs> capture kids as they were leaving with their roller skates around on their shoulders you know so. oh fascinating that is 
Geraldo, <laughs> what did you do to us? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, the presence of Walt, which so I mean, actually, let's start. Why not? Can we dive in? Can we? Can, can we? Yeah. Can, I, can, I, can, I, can I request? Absolutely. Yeah. Can I request swimming hole on page thirty-seven? Can I request a reading of? Yeah, that? absolutely. Let's and maybe we transition to form there first. I don't know. We'll yeah, start. yeah. Right on. <laughs> swimming hole. My sister bets me ten bucks. The ice just around the creek edges. Patches of snow melting here and there along the path. No way I'm doing it. Jim says, tightening his belt. The dog now far ahead. I'll do it. My face hot anyhow. And the bravery and how life catches fire in a moment. In my run up, shirt off, boots off, jeans on top of the snow. I notice the cold, my leap. A half cannonball through the March air and my gasp even before I hit the surface. Icy current. What do I know of cold? Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was painful. <laughs> Not to get too explicit, but there were parts of my body that, like, I literally thought it felt like a knife, you know, so. Oh. <laughs> well, I think, you know, there's that thing, and it's in the EcoCrit Reader, and, I, and, and we were, before... The, our pre-conversation before I hit record, we were talking yeah. about young people and phones, but or just people, you know, the idea of living in human-made manufactured environments. Right. One of, I think, the lessons that that can teach you, teach a person, is that the world is made for you. Right. As yeah. opposed to being in nature where yeah. I always like the Douglas Copeland line in Souvenir of Canada. He's like, nature wants to enchant you, but it also wants to turn you into a puddle of blood and hair. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's the, uh, you know, that's the, uh, I don't know if it's a disjunction, but it's definitely like what draws me in. That's the mystery that draws me into it. And uh, I've, I've always had it. I think my whole life and I don't know where it really comes from. If it was like, I don't know, I was left alone a lot when I was a kid and, you know, in the woods, basically, I was afraid to go into my house when I got home from school off the bus. Cause nobody was there. I was afraid because I thought Freddy Krueger was in there and <clears throat> going to get me. So I just went out and hung out in the woods and kind of daydreamed and, I don't know. That's like, I was always like looking for, I don't know, the mystery or fairies or some shit like that out there. <laughs> so, but that, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think you're on to something there with the, like that kind of like idea of beauty and then just the, the harsh reality of what is actually there. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a, I don't know, I like that. Yeah, and I think for, yeah, for me, the the role of nature in this too, I, I, yeah, that's what you say about that, you know, just being in the woods and that sense of exploration and that sense of 
really powerful sensory experiences right that come through in your work yeah it's uh i think that you know writing this book like it was i don't know i never thought that when i was writing it i wasn't like these are things i'm going to publish because it was kind of like a kind of I don't know, like a mental health fix for me, exploring kind of the, those harsh, kind of the harsh feelings, you know, that you have growing up, everybody has them. And I was just trying to wrap my head around it. But now that you say that, I feel like it's those like spikes in, in emotion and feeling that made me remember these specific kind of episodes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, maybe that, I don't know, like the natural side of it or natural world environmental side of it is that it's like the sharp end of this. It's the sharp end. That's why I remember it. And I think that for everybody, that's how it is. You remember yeah. the traumatic parts or like, they don't have to be traumatic. Like the sharp bend can be like very beautiful. So I don't know. That's that kind of makes sense to me. Yeah, it is. And also for me, it's this like the, 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 the sense of place that one get that I get, I've yeah. gotten every time I've read the book. Right on. Is... That's, that's great. Cause that's when I was assembling it, that's kind of what I wanted. Good. Hey, it worked. And so um, the other thing we were talking about in our on-ramp conversations, I'm currently teaching a poetry workshop. Yeah. And I promised the students, so the, the final assignment, grading assignment for this class is that they have a chat book. Right. That I always remind them is due on May 6th. <laughs> and everything <laughs> we 6th. do is how do we get to May 6th? <laughs> <laughs> and you're in one piece and you have right. a small collection of poems. And I've decided that I'm going to do this too. Oh, awesome. And it's only week five of the semester. And it, there was an idea that I had and I had some poetic fragments. Uh, right on. And I haven't really started the thing in earnest. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, tr- I'm being like my students. Actually, you know, some of my students have already started to, to produce work and show yeah. work and be like, you know, we do yeah. free writing exercise in class. They're like, I'm working for the chat book. Is it okay if I do that? I was like, yes. Yeah. Um, but Absolutely. what I've never done a focused collection before I've only done like, this is a memory. This is a thought that I had. This is something that has stuck in my memory for years and it just comes out and it's this freestanding thing. Right. And so maybe I'm a little intimidated by this, you know, idea of like i'm gonna i i want to do a call a chat my chat book about a very specific time in my life right where some very intense and weird things happened but it was also this really formative time in my life sure which is what this book is what sling the slingshot vignettes is and so what is that what is that process like and what was that process like for you to say i'm writing this book about this right yeah and i'm going to so, write this as a peer as a collection of poems right yeah uh you know i've geez i mean ever since i was like 
decided or you know <laughs> a lot of people or at least a lot of people around here in the kind of Kerouac school Naropa scene talk about a vow to poetry I and mean, like taking their vow to poetry mm. and uh it was probably geez it was a long time ago I had left Pittsburgh I was living in Flagstaff Arizona and uh at that point, I didn't really know anything about vows to poetry or anything like that, but I can remember skateboarding down this street in this like Mexi Navajo neighborhood and deciding, you know what, I'm just going to write poems and I'm going to write, I'm going to write them about my life. And ever since then, like I've, I was like, you know, I need, I need to start. I really feel like my very first book needs to be about just like growing up and I think that you know that probably happens for a lot of people but Mm -hmm. um that's where it started and of course I wasn't able to do it for years and years decades really Mm. um until I had like established uh a ritual a writing ritual and uh I do that I started I started actually writing at cafes regularly. I mean, I had written, but it was always sporadic. Yeah. Like when I was in school, it was sporadic. When I was moving around or getting my feet on the ground as a real adult, it was always very sporadic um, until I started, like, I decided I was going to go to a cafe and like get a coffee or whatever and write a little bit. And that just kind of exploded into this ritual and uh, that's when I was living in town in Boulder and then at cafes were easily accessible. So I would go to the cafe to write. Um, and then we moved to the foothills, my wife and I, and there are no cafes around here. You know, we're eight miles from the nearest stoplight. You know, I have to adjust my ritual to fit my new circumstances. And it was years before I figured it out. Um, and now like making time and all of that, it just turns out that I write best in the morning. And so I get up before work every day at 5 AM and that's when I start writing. And, um, that's when I was finally able to decide I have this time I'm doing it. I had been writing a lot of haiku. I'm, you know, I'm primarily like a haikuist. I consider myself like at best an average haikuist, right? So that's what I do in the morning. And uh, after I had that ritual kind of built, because it's really a building process, like over the years or whatever, you, you put together these things that work for you. And whether it's in the evening or in the morning or in the middle of the day at work, at lunch, you know, whatever like frank o'hara's fucking lunch poems he was writing at lunch time you know like that's the time that worked for him so you you kind of just build it and then once i had that foundation where i was like this is what i do i write at this time if i don't do it i feel shitty when i am doing it i feel great that foundation was built and i was like okay like now's the time now's the time to write that that book about growing up that I thought about 20 years ago 
like this is it so and that's kind of how it happened <laughs> and wow. then I, I was just like okay memories and I would write down kind of those like sharp end memories and uh just made like a short outline of those sharp end memories and then use the hybrid form to like flush them out and uh yeah and like haiku you know it's very present so i struggled with because this was like path the path like very distant past for me i struggled with that the kind of presence present mm -hmm. tense that the haiku demands and uh you know i, I still don't know if i've figured that out but um it kind of worked so it worked for me to like get it out and like i said earlier maybe during our on-ramp part like i never intended to publish when i was writing them it wasn't really intended to publish them um i knew it was going to be a book but i didn't just because i you know it's like personal stuff i don't know if it's going to be any good i don't want to embarrass myself or the people in my life you know so <laughs> i didn't know and there was just a lot of uh for the book itself uh after like writing it i had i don't know this is kind of a long story is it all right if i like mm -hmm. fucking go off on do it man do it. it all right cool so i like i had this other book of hybrid about living here in pinewood uh, about this mystical eco mystical hermit that was like fictional and but I always had this sense that there was a, like a hermit living up in these caves. There's caves all over the place around here. So I'm like, there's probably somebody living up there. So I, it kind of started. And I wrote this book about that, that idea. And uh, it was called Seeking the Button Rock Hermit. And I shopped it around to all these presses. And of course it was rejected like a jillion times. And, and then I just forgot about it. I was like, oh, you know, whatever. Like I'm moving on to some new stuff. And that's when I really started writing the Slingshot vignettes. And I kind of forgot about that book. And then like last, I guess, spring of 2021, I got a email seemingly out of nowhere from Scott King, who was the editor of Red Dragonfly Press in, uh, in Minnesota. And it was like, well, I love your book and I'm selecting it for the Meadowhawk Prize. And I was like, awesome. You're going to publish this hermit book for me. This is great. You know, I got the prize money. He sent me a bunch of books. It was, you know, we were working on this manuscript for a couple months. It was ready to go to press. We had the, we had the cover design done more or less. And we were kind of just figuring out the last things after a couple months and uh he was like okay we're sending it to the printer on whatever day and he asked me some question i'm not sure what it was about um but i answered him and he didn't respond and this was like you know the plague had been going on for a year by then and it was like real bad and uh i didn't know why he didn't he had been really responsive all through the months that we had been working on it and uh I was like, well, what's going on? So I, I emailed him again, no response. It had been a couple of days past the, past the time when it was supposed to go to the printer. 
And then he, well, I, I was like, well, I need to, I hadn't talked to him yet. I hadn't actually spoken to him on the phone or anything. It was all over email yeah. or social media. And uh, so I was like, I'm going to find his email or find his phone number. So I, I just like Googled Scott King, Red Dragonfly Press phone number. But the first hit that came up in the Google search was Scott King of Red Dragonfly Press dies from some Minnesota newspaper. And I was like, what? (laughs) And so I hit the, I hit the, you know, I would go to the newspaper article and um, yeah. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly if it was COVID related or not, but sure enough, Scott King passed away. And so I was like, obviously like grieving for this person who I'd been working with pretty closely for the past couple months. And then it kind of hit me like the heartbreak of the book is done. It's dead in the water. Like the person who was working on it and it was a one, you know, red dragonfly, more or less a one, one person operation. So the, you know, that like, hope and dream of having a book published uh was just kind of like hamstrung all at once and so i was like heartbroken and dealing with all of that and it was just like you know and then i communicated with his wife a little bit and it was just like okay this isn't happening now and so i had to like kind of let go of all of that you know and i had told everybody and you know like I thought it was going to happen. And so then I, it wasn't happening anymore. And I, you know, so I was like, I had been grieving over that for several months and I wasn't able to write like even in my morning ritual, I was like writing, but it was shit. You know, it was just like, yeah. I can't, how much do I believe in this now? Or, you yeah. know, it was in my head. Um, But then like I started to come out of it. I finished the manuscript for the slingshot vignettes over that time, that weird time. And uh, and then my grandmother passed away. Um, She was in her nineties. It was, you know, it was awful, but I drove back to Pennsylvania, went through all of that. And on my way back, I was driving back across, across the Mississippi, was driving up the Missouri river Valley it's a beautiful area. And I had stopped along the river just to kind of check, check in with my wife. And, you know, I was looking at my phone and that's when I got the acceptance uh, notice from red from, from alien Buddha. And oh wow, I just sat there by the river and just like sobbed. Like I hadn't sobbed yeah. since, since I was a little kid, you know, I don't think so. Uh there was like this long process and like submitting the slingshot vignettes was like a way for me to try to lift myself out of like the, I don't ever want to fucking publish anything, you know? Oh man. And I was just like, if I submit this, it'll help me. And that's kind of how submitting things is for me. And it might be the way to, I don't know, maybe your students can relate to this or use it in some way like 
when I, after I submit something somewhere, whether it's a contest or just a zine or a magazine or something, like, I feel like I did my job as a poet. Yeah. Like, that's enough. I yes. did it. I have no control over it after that. Like, whatever. And I think, like, submitting the Slingshot vignettes, even though I never really intended to publish it, like, it brought me up out of that gloom of, like, the brokenhearted, like, I'm never going to have a book out, you know? Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. That was kind of the process with, I don't know. That's definitely the process for this particular book, the, the vignettes. So I don't know. Yeah. know. My story wasn't intense, but I cried when I got that email too. Yeah. I mean, how can you not? Right. Yeah. You, and the dog really wanted to go out. The dog knew it was time for its walk. And then I was like, eh, I was trying to hook the leash up <laughs> and like, then just walking around my neighborhood, just like misty eyed, you know, you know, it's like, and the dog doesn't care, you know? <laughs> yeah. The dog's like, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. Like, nobody else cares. It's just yeah. you, you know, You're yeah. like, oh. <laughs> I built this up for myself and finally it happened. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty great. I'm so stoked about all of it. So yeah, it's so it's good. good. So I guess we have to talk about since this was something. Honestly, this was my first high bun experience. Oh wow! Okay, right on. Yeah. So yeah. we. So I think. Yeah, I'm just going to assume everyone else was ignorant as me. So what is a high bun? <laughs> so a high bun. I actually, I think the first instances of it were from the Japanese, the medieval Japanese poet Basho, who was a want, like basically a wandering poet. And he would write, he did these like travel journals. And in his journals, he would write um, haiku, or back then, I guess they called it a hoku. Um, and so eventually, I don't know if he probably published these travel journals in his lifetime. And people caught on and they were like, oh, this is kind of an awesome way to write a travel journal with kind of entries of what you what your day was like. And then a, a haiku to kind of not really like they might not even be related, but it kind of illuminates the prose. And then over the time or centuries or whatever, it arrived in the in the US and you know how Americans are they take shit from other people and do whatever they want with it and uh so that's how you have the English language uh highbun which is like can be fiction or essay or uh memoir or really any kind of prose kind of illuminated with haiku so that's that's kind of my understanding of it and I discovered them uh at the allen ginsburg library at the uh naropa university i used to live right down there and i oh, used wow. to go to the library all the time and they have an incredible poetry collection just like out of this world poetry collection from like super rare and it's all circulating you don't have to like go into the rare book room like this is shit from allen ginsburg's personal collection with you know, his notes in the margin and it's just on the shelf and you can take it off and read it and it's incredible. But anyhow, that's where I discovered the high bun through this poet who teaches there 
his books were on the shelf. Um, Andrew Schelling, who is like a, uh, he's a scholar, poet, translator. But anyhow, that's where I first saw the Highburn in his book. It's called Two Elk. I think it was published by maybe Bootstraps Press. One of the, a very small press from this area. But anyhow, that's where I discovered it. And I hadn't, you know, and like everybody probably, they had the right haiku in their like when they were in high school or college or whatever. So I knew about that, but I didn't know about the high bun. And, uh, and as soon as I read those, I was like, Oh, this is, this is kind of how I think. Mm. So this is, I'm going to go with this. And I, you know, I write long poems and other types, other forms too, but mostly I, I function with the haiku type forms and high bun and, what they call haikai forms in the English language haiku community or whatever, um, which I had no, I had no connection to, didn't know it existed. It turns out it's this whole worldwide phenomenon um, with journals and foundations and contests. And there's just this whole other world outside wow. of the mainstream poetry world. It's like adjacent to it. And there are poets that cross over but for the most part, not really. And uh, I, you know, I'm super weird, but I'm like deeply serious and deeply involved in it. Oh, <laughs> so sweet. It's like, that's incredible. It's like this weird scene. That's great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think for me too, is what the form then, because that's what I'm talking about is what for me is so profoundly poignant about these poems you know is that you have the the sort of prose poem yeah beginning which is a scene which is a story and then that within the haiku that sense of presence right yeah that you have this this narrative this experience that you're recalling and then it ends in this really piercing emotional experience right on yeah that's that that great. is so for me was so profound like i was like holy i said i was i'll blurb that book and it was like oh i don't know what's gonna happen and it just blew me away like i'm so glad to hear that because that's like basically exactly what i i wanted to happen and uh yeah. what i try to do with the with the high bun with the prose and the haiku and then within the haiku itself is like create this disjunction that will open and this is something i was thinking about back in grad school when i knew you 20 years ago um that was like weird. opening like opening a creative space for the reader like yeah. to, to kind of make their own meaning out of it and so in the high bun, there's like two opportunities for that. Well, the, also, if you're doing it in the prose poem at the beginning, you can do it throughout it. But for me, the main disjunction should happen between the prose and the haiku. And then within the haiku, two parts there where there's another disjunction, whether it's strong or soft or like barely linked like it should open something for the person who's reading it. And that's like what I try, what I'm trying for. I, you know, I don't know that I'm very successful at it, but that's what, that's my ideal. You know, that's like what I'm shooting for. No, I mean, I, and I think maybe I, 
I was, the pump was prepped for me. Um, our honors freshman seminar, the theme is memory and revision. Okay. And so I've spent the last few fall semesters um, exploring with, with my students, these just different manifestations of memory and how memory is reliable and unreliable and how it evolves and how it is an emotional experience and can be an intellectual experience and can be this formative schema building experience. And so I think for me, and I, I believe I wrote the blurb in the fall, right? When did this book come yeah. out? Yeah, yeah, it came out <laughs> September sometime. Yeah, like so yeah. September. So I would have been, I would be getting ready for that. Okay, right that, or very in the very opening salvos of that experience. And for me, it's like, oh, this book experience. It, it takes place in memory. This is a story of a childhood. This is a story of. You know, these vignettes are these, you know, I what was your phrase earlier? Peak moments, piercing moments. Can I remember what conversation sharp. we had 37 minutes ago? Sharp moments. Sharp like moments. That. Yeah, something like that. Sharp moments. And that then the, the shift in form. Then, le then leads, you know, to this other... You know, and for me, it's almost like, are the prose poems the experience of time? Right. And the haiku as the sort of emotional experience of memory. Oh, right on. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm someone who like gets, I, I stole, this happened to me two hours ago. I was talking with a colleague about a, a troublesome class and I was reminded of a troublesome class and I had this experience of this really shitty student. Oh man. And I just like, I went into a rage. Like, I mean, this, this happens <laughs> to me sometimes where I will remember something from my childhood or whatever, and it'll just come out of nowhere. Yeah. And to experience that narrative in time, like that, that's a very different experience. But I was like, okay, I'm going to tell you the story of when this thing happened. Yeah, but that trigger flash memory yeah. is, I think, for me, represented in the haiku. And so I think about right. like, you know, the poem, uh, the swimming hole poem. As you could tell that story, but I think isn't your experience of memory the profound pain of right spring thaw? <laughs> and I thank you. By the way, you passed the test. That was an invisible Western Pennsylvania test. You said crick. <laughs> <laughs> so you're still legit right on <laughs> you know when you read it you said crick not creek crick of being in the crick and that yeah. but right you on. have to get through the narrative to explain that to anybody else right but perhaps yeah. we experience those emotions in haiku right and for me at least that's like the best way that i can i can do it you know, yeah. to kind of like break it apart and put it back together. I don't know, in a weird way. You know, I, I struggle with why I'm so attracted to the form. But I just now, after practicing it for, you know, well over a decade now, it's just like, it's just how, how I think. I don't you know, when I you sit know down that's the other thing I've been trying to explain to the students since they're my student, my poetry students, since they're so early in the process. Right. 
You know, it's like people who, you know, even, even traditional, I, well, my phrase is, I always say, no doubt. And there's no doubt in my mind, Shakespeare dreamt an iambic pentameter. Right. Yeah. Well, absolutely. You know, there's no way he was counting syllables on his fingers when he was right at the top of his form. He just could. And I was like, you know, you think about what, you know, free form improv improvisational hip hop is like people just think in the form. Right. Yeah. They think in rhyme. They think in all of that. In that beat and the triplet flow and yeah, all of it. So you, you think in high bun. Yeah. That's just how it goes. (laughs) Yeah, and which I think is can it be more nerdy and like no, I don't, I don't think it's weird. I mean, I think it's it's <laughs> perfection, and the fact that the product is compelling, and I think for me, the product of thinking of, I mean, thinking about that book, and I'm actually not going to be teaching the honor seminar. It looks like this fall, I have to, I have to do. My department what? has other needs, um, <laughs> but I've been thinking a lot about memory, yeah, for the last few years, and this book added something to the formula or like confirmed something for me in the way that I think about the experience of memory. Wow. Well, that's like the best compliment I think anybody could get. So thank you. <laughs> but so, yeah. Can we hear some poems? I mean, we're, we're 40 yeah. minutes in, you've read one poem. Oh, we, shit. Yeah, it's all right. Can we get a couple? I mean, I, why don't you choose? Yeah. I chose the last one and then I'll choose okay. the next one, but you can okay. choose this one. Okay, right on. I'm going to read Stained Glass Windows. So this was uh, probably the first, this was the first haibun I had in the modern haiku journal. And you're probably not familiar, but it's super hard to get a haibun in the modern haiku. Oh, (laughs) wow. They only published a handful per issue. And there's obviously like, thousands of writers so uh i you know this one has a special place in my heart just because it was the first one somebody was like yeah that's i'll publish that it's okay you know you know it's (laughs) you know it's a i i was explaining my students too it's like it's leveling up yeah you You know i was like get in the campus literary magazine yeah know that you can do that and then see what the next thing up is. What's the next right. aspirational thing? Yeah. And go exactly. for that thing. Yeah. Start at the bottom and build your way up. Yeah. And uh, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to seem too presumptuous, but I uh, recently had a high bun accepted by Rattle Magazine. Oh, wow. And it's uh, going to be in the March issue. It's like a librarian tribute, <laughs> which is awesome. Um, but it's also like the most I've ever gotten paid for a poem. But check out r- next month's rattle. It'll be there. Anyhow, cool. I'm going to go ahead and read this. <laughs> Sorry. No, do it. Stain- no, it's all good. <laughs> stained glass windows. The connecting stone to stained glass. Slivers on the ground in morning light. A dazzle of blues, greens, reds. Our slingshot wrist rocket armed angles. No one around on these old country roads. The quiet, tall and whitewashed, the church siding towers ominous over our kid's strides, kid aim. Another whiz of another stone and more stained glass raining down in kaleidoscope complexities and the true pleasure of the smash. Dad's belt, he holds his aim just long enough. 
so that, that's probably my favorite one from the from the book but i mean there's all kinds of weird like reasons for that that don't necessarily have to do with politics <laughs> more like ego no like, i mean but finally. the space too i mean you're, you're right is thinking about this idea of the disjunction in the space right yeah there's the experience and then it gets distilled down in the emotional experience of memory right which yeah. i like that uh i like that which i think is the other i mean i'm you know i sometimes i think i, I try to be too rational sometimes and so if it's uh, all yeah. narrative you discount the emotional right on yeah, yeah. kind of brings it back or i don't know introduces it maybe yeah. Either way. Okay, my turn. Sure. Can we hear Soda Pop Heist on number th- on page 33? <laughs> this is one of my favorite memories from childhood. Mm. <laughs> Soda Pop Heist. Us kids on a long midnight walk to the state park campground where maybe there might be some new kids camping. So we walked the six miles around the forested hills on the old rough roads. In a soda machine, salt water short, short out heist at the park's concession stand. Spit the salt water into the coin slot and hit the buttons, and all the soda pops come rushing out. And indeed, the truth being that we must carry all that sugar six miles back home. None of it makes it. No kids at the campground. Hot summer night. There must be something more. Yeah, so that one. Wow. Some of these I haven't reread in a while, but uh, yeah, that one's, I like that one. Um, That was, we used to, you know, I lived in the middle of nowhere, but there was a state park on the other side of the ridge and you could either climb the mountain and go down through the woods, or you could walk the road in a big loop all the way over there. And in the summertime, there were like tourists there. And sometimes they'd be camping or whatever, and there'd be other kids there and, as I got into adolescence, like maybe there were some girls there to like try to, you know, yeah, talk to. Um, and so we'd make this trip like pretty regularly, but then we learned how to short out the soda machine so we could get free, free soda pops. And uh, after that, it was really just about robbing the soda, soda machine repeatedly. Um, and weirdly, we like never got caught but we emptied it out like many times. So yeah, that was, uh, I like that one. Those are good, some good memories and kind of sad too. Cause a lot of those, a lot of those, uh, kids that I did that with aren't with us anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, thanks to the opioid epidemic, but, uh, we are, you know, I try to remember them, you know. I try to pour yeah. some libations here and there. Yes. <laughs> Soda pop libations. Yes. Wow. So which one do you want? Let's, let's just keep right. this going. Let's keep right this going. On, right I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm enjoying, the, I'm enjoying the, the reading portion of it. <laughs> it's kind of, uh, let me see. Oh, I'll read Kidnapped. It's on page 51. Kidnapped. The shrink tells me to write it out. My feeling about throwing a chair at him. How it moved through the air. 
All I can come up with are Nirvana lyrics. I draw cages and heads, flop hairdos and knives, the concave of a skateboard. It's the weeks all locked up that are rageful, the window winter. I confess my underbriar, how it stings to touch, how I have my dad's eyes and am agnostic. The rubbing to blood and the blood dries on my elbow, scabs to the sheets before they unstrap me. Late blizzard. On the other side of the glass, I stand up. Yeah, so when I was, uh, when I was in high school, I got um, confined to a psychiatric clinic. Mm. Um, and uh, that's kind of where I was introdu- introduced to like writing. It's really where I started writing because the art therapist was like, well, draw and write this stuff so you can like try to process it or whatever. I don't really understand the psychology therapy of it, but um, that's where I started writing and it, you know, changed my life. So it was kind of a combination of that and Dungeons and Dragons that sent me to college. So yeah, yeah. Some of the experiences there were uh, pretty sharp, and that's kind of where this yeah. poem comes from. Um, so, yeah, I like the in the haiku in this one. It's like a kind of a formal trick to use, like the prepositional phrase in the middle of the haiku, because mm-hmm. you can kind of um, connect the first line and the third line. And have them be kind of disjointed, but at the same time connected mm. in a way where you don't really have to struggle with sort of like a surrealist uh, juxtaposition where the two things are completely different. Mm. Um, and for me, like poetics wise, it's a like pretty useful tool to use that prepositional phrase in the middle, mm. but it can also get like tedious if you do it too much um but i can yeah i can i kind of use it as a like i don't want to be too like surrealist because you know i don't know how like effective that yeah that is. um so i you know i use that occasionally but that's like definitely a, a kind of a poetics kind of trick for lack of a better word i don't know <laughs> in the haiku world anyhow no that's or, a, and it's a good trick it's a solid trick <laughs> device so actually, is that what the smart people call it i don't know <laughs> <laughs> well you know it's so funny because i you know i had this conversation yesterday in my poetry class where we're going yeah. through all of these techniques and i'm like you know maybe these aren't things you think in yet these are things that come up in revision right yeah you know for sure and the student finally asks, one student asks is just like, he's really interested in my process and is like, so do you really do these things or is this just like in a book? <laughs> and it's like, no, no, no. These things are, these are tools in the arsenal. These right. are things that you can draw from when we talk about them. Exactly. Yeah. So, and that's- so I'm going to think about this prepositional phrase in the middle stuff in my own work, I think. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, you know, and I, I look at the form in general, the haibun, haiku, senyu, all the like uh, haikai forms, tanka, all those like short Japanese forms, or even the Chinese, older Chinese four line forms. 
they're just, you know, I look at them as tools. I'm not, I don't consider myself a formalist. I just like, these are the tools I usually use from my, my writing toolbox. You know, I also do a lot of like weird, like free written poems that don't have, you know, I don't regularly publish them. I did have a couple in Bombay Gin a couple of years ago. That's the journal from Naropa, but uh, I don't, you know, it's just tools, just more yeah. tools for the toolbox. So I think they're, they're good to have. Yeah. Sure. And I think containers to be filled in, in ways of can proven ways of conveying experience. Yeah. Like it's, there's, you can't really argue this doesn't work because it's been happening for hundreds of years. Yeah. So it probably works. It probably was. I mean, it's the same thing, you know, yesterday in fiction writing class was the, you know, traditional conflict, rising action, resolution, falling action, plot structure. Right. You know, I was like, look, here it is. There's even a graph. Right. <laughs> There's a graph in the textbook. Yeah. Do if you, you know don't know like... what to do, do that. <laughs> yeah. Successfully do this a few times, then become an avant-garde writer. Like, yes. Prove yourself. You know, like Picasso was able to draw realistic fucking drawing before he decided to, you know, draw the yes. know, cubist masterpieces. Yes. So. so could I request one more before moving on to the bottom five? Sure. Yeah. Actually, I want to go back to another seemingly, you know, or innocent memory or kinder memory or whatever. Sure. On 34 Cameron County Kool-Aid, I was looking at that <laughs> as you're reading Soda this Pop Ice, a... and I was like, man, maybe I requested the wrong one, but now I can just just ask this one. And sure. And yeah. and some of the same things happen. Yeah. This is uh I had no idea, but everybody that has read the book and has talked to me about it mentions <laughs> mentions this one so uh yeah cameron county kool-aid cameron county kool-aid my sister pours the gallons of grain alcohol into the bathtub bottles tipped and empty all over the floor and now the mixed she dumps the sugary red dust all in shaking the container at the end and the party starts before evening even my first taste the surprising looseness of my tongue talking. The kids arrived in trucks, cars, by bike. We rode 10 miles through the woods. They're all drunk by dark and it rages. Maniacal laughs, lips, punches, puke. I find myself face down in the backyard hugging a party ball. Some older girl rubbing my back. And in the dim mist, the doors record skipping into my hangover. Our parents pulling in with first light. First kiss, vomit just at the back of my throat. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, you know, my sister threw this house party. I was like 13 or 14. Mm. And that's the first time I was ever like drunk or whatever, you know. And uh, she was three or she's three years older than me. And, uh, you know, I just I had always been like so shy and not able to talk to anybody really and then i was drunk right and i was just like like talking for hours and hours with people i never saw before didn't know or like you know and uh i i had 
that was the first time I got drunk. And then I didn't drink again until I was 26. Oh, wow. Um, so there was, <laughs> I had this, this very sharp experience and then uh, didn't drink, didn't drink again. So, uh, but yeah. And I think that's a universal ish experience. I think yeah, my poem right. would be called, and maybe I need to write it. It would be called sour apple pucker. Right. Right on. <laughs> That was my first Absolutely. drunk experience with, <laughs> yeah. which I think I still have a bottle downstairs <laughs> of it. And if it's you hold to on to it too long, it like gets this weird color. Like it loses that luminescent green. Oh no. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The first time being drunk, I'm, you know, I think everybody should write their first time being drunk poem. Like it should be a requirement. In yes your undergraduate poetry class but maybe some of those people haven't been drunk before i don't know i, don't I know think some of them haven't been drunk before some of them are very underage but you know it might be an impetus for them to go get drunk for the first time yeah and i don't have and tenure so you're not allowed to do that yet right? yes <laughs> so for your homework kids <laughs> get drunk <laughs> oof yeah anyhow anyhow that's, uh... <laughs> anyhow I'm, a li- I'm actually a little bit tipsy right now so that's good yeah you get a little tipsy and I think I'm real clever and I'm probably not no this is going great and actually maybe being a little loose is good for because it's now time for the bottom five all right all right a series of questions not related to our main topic that are of a surrealistic and or philosophical nature (laughs) are you ready tony i am ready i'm a little nervous i've listened to some of these okay episodes so. so you probably know the first question i'm gonna ask i'm not sure that i do but i'm i'm ready because this is the everybody first question first bottom five first podcast question okay if reincarnation is real and you had to come back as an infectious disease or illness what kind of disease or illness would you be oh wow um probably a intestinal kind of thing probably like a diarrhea situation (laughs) diarrhea sounds good uh, yeah, <laughs> uh, I think, yeah, you know, that's like kind of just running through, you know, that's how I kind of do it. So I think yeah. that's probably will fit yeah. pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Get away quick. Diarrhea of the mouth, uh, of the pen, of, you know, all of the anus. Things. Of the anus. Yeah. Of real diarrhea. Yeah. Yes. Which I'm intimately acquainted with <laughs> As i'm sure most people are yeah that's where most people everyone needs to write the first drunk poem and the first diarrhea and the diarrhea poem everybody's yeah. got to explore their diarrhea that's the experience. start that's where you start building your foundation for a poetry ritual <laughs> so that's where you take your poetic vow your vow to poetry <laughs> right <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) The question two. If you had to choose, would you welcome the total elimination of day or night? This comes from the book of Surrealist Games. 
Oh, right. I remember that book. I think we, we might have been in a class where we had. Yes, we were we in that, that class. That <laughs> we were in that, that book. Class yeah, yeah. Um, probably day. I would. Boy, that's tough. Yeah, daytime. Yeah. I would. I would say see you later. I like the stars. I like hiking at night. Out here, when you when you climb a mountain uh, in the summertime, you have to start in the dark because you have to summit before the thunderstorms start, before the lightning starts at noon. And most of the mountains require, uh, you know, anywhere from ten to twenty miles of hiking to get to the top or to climb to the top. And uh, some of the most profound moments of my life happen during that dark time before the sun comes up out in the wilderness alone, kind of in my bubble of light from my headlamp. You can't see past your light. And it's, you know, for me, I do it alone. So there's, you know, there's nothing else out there. And it's the mystery beyond the, the light there that uh, is most interesting to me. That kind of like riparian zone between light and dark and the fucking utter doom of being out in the wilderness like that, like 10 miles out where if you fuck up, you're going to die probably, or you're at least going to need to be rescued. I don't know. There's like, there's something that's so, uh, I don't know, like visceral and there's an appeal to it, but there's also like just complete dread that I like to look at. I don't want to be in it for very long, but I like to see it. And I think that's my like reptilian brain that usually has to live in this super fucking mundane world, like really trying to get out, you know? So that's where I come closest to it. I'm very safe, you know, I'm super. Yes, no, I totally get it. I I was reminded today. So we had a, we had a snow melt day today. It was 50 today and we'd had a hard snow and ice pack for a couple of weeks And I was on uh, Bigelow Boulevard going at a speed. Closest speed limit is 35. Most people try to double it. And I'm going (laughs) along and I realized the traction control. I felt the traction control. Oh, shit. You know, it's like that moment of like. moment. Yeah. Yes. Where the car is like, oh, I have to keep this person alive. Right. And you're like very close to death. Like, yes, you cut it off. Yeah. It was the highlight of my day. I mean, this yeah. conversation has been great, actually. This conversation was great. <laughs> there was a highlight of my day to that point. Okay. <laughs> was feeling the traction control kick in and go, oh, well, well I gave I'll it look. something to do. I thought it was, I gave it something to do, but I was like, that was the void. That was the void calling. Yep. That and it was, was almost, so visceral and good. There. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Just good. a little bit. Just so that, you know, I'll taste. Like that, I don't know. It's a Scandinavian term, legom. Just the right amount. Yeah. It's like, just the right amount of doom and death. And then I can go back to my regular comfortable sipping wine life. Yeah. Yeah. 
Sweet. Climate control and everything. <laughs> yeah. Question three. Have you ever had a dream you wish you could revisit or a dream world you wish you could periodically revisit from time to time? Yeah, like regularly. Um, I dream about, and this kind of goes back to our poetry discussion, so I hope I'm not breaking the rule, but... No, do it, do it, do it. My dreams are very geographical and very topographical. So I have dreams of like places that I've been like a long time ago or even mixtures of geographies. So like the mount, the Andes, like the mountains in Peru merging with the mountains of North central Pennsylvania. And it's just this like incredible jungly high, like 20,000 foot snow glacier peak but my my like childhood home is right there where I'm like lounging under these beautiful cloudy skies and like the grass is green and you can walk it barefoot around. And I don't know. I, that's the place I, I like regularly want to go to in my dream. So it's so interesting you say the blending of places for because for me, it's architecture. Oh, right on. It's buildings that smash together. Oh, I'm yeah. in the house I grew up in and then I go through a doorway and I'm backstage at the college theater. You know, awesome. it's like the bathroom's supposed to be here, but now yeah. I'm backstage. Yeah. Like how thrilling are our dreams, man? Yeah. I just like, I love it. Like every night I'm like, okay, where am I going? Like this yeah. is it. <laughs> yeah. It's really great. I, I really feel like that might be the best part of being a human. I mean, I don't know how other animals dream, but man, it's good. I mean, it can be good. It can be terrible too, but also like even the terrible ones, I'm like, well, that was pretty sharp, you know? That was all right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty real. If it wasn't. <laughs> That's a good so, question. <laughs> yes. So back to maybe the visceral question four. Is there anything in your home that you are afraid of? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff I'm afraid of. Um, I'm not, I'm not like an NRA nut, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm a gun owner and I'm fucking terrified of it. And I'm a gun owner because I live in the middle of nowhere and wild animals break into houses here. And so I just feel like I need to have it in case a bear or a mountain lion or something crazy breaks into my house. Um, we've had, uh, in our neighborhood, we've had black bears break into people's houses and it, you know, it's fucking scary. Um, so yeah, I'm terrified I own a gun and I'm fucking terrified of it. And, you know, I'm just waiting for the, bear to smell my dinner and decide that it's going to come in you know so that's yeah yeah well yeah i mean you had something you had posted something on instagram not too long ago there were some tracks that were like near your back porch or something that oh you right in yeah your house. there's a mountain lion cache just i mean literally like 20 yards behind my house and i saw i saw her um last the beginning of last summer, I think, or maybe it was midsummer, but I was making dinner, <laughs> talking to my wife, and I saw this blur, this 
brown blur fly past the upper part of the window and then I was like oh my god what was that I thought it was a deer at first but I ran to the side window and looked out and sure enough it's a mountain lion who was literally seconds before between me the wall and the mountain lion obviously there's a wall there but she was five feet from me and uh, just all muscle all muscle and claws and she looked back for half a second when I went to the window and you know looked at me I don't know if she could see me but then continued up into the boulders behind my house we live on the side of a mountain and it's pretty much all boulders for 20 yards and then a cliff and her cache which was a mule deer carcass was right against the cliff right behind the house and uh yeah, I mean, that's why I that's why I have a gun. Yeah. And you know, I have bear spray too. Like mm. the spray is the first line of defense if a wild creature gets into my home, that's dangerous. Um but also like I know that it doesn't work sometimes and uh I just I need to be ready. So Understandable. Understandable. <laughs> So, yeah. <laughs> All right. So question five. Question five. We're almost through the bottom five here. All right. Awesome. The high concept question. <laughs> if we're living in a dystopian future, and I mean like a different one than the one we're kind of in. Actual it's a little one? more exciting. <laughs> okay. Because in this dystopian future, the only books to survive would be those bound in human skin. <laughs> Meaning they're getting nice. rid of all the books except for the ones bound in human skin. So unless you do, it does not survive into future human history. So I guess yeah. I'm saying is, would you? And what book would it be? With the caveat, somebody already did the Bible, the Quran, and the complete works of Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. I really those are taken. Those. That, that, when they unlock the tannery <laughs> at 6, at like 6.05. Right, right. They're working yeah. on those three. That's good. I'm not really interested in those ones. Yeah. Um, what book would it be? Oh my God, that's a, that's hard. Yeah. Um, One book, or it does not survive into the future. Well, I have this book that is kind of key to the. Well, it has a lot of tools in it. It has a lot of poetic tools in it for the type of poetry I like to write. And poetry being, being super important to me to keep my sanity, especially in a dystopian future, I think I would need it. It's called The Disjunctive Dragonfly by uh, Richard Gilbert. And it's a... Uh, it almost reads like a dissertation, but it's a... Uh, description of these poetic techniques that center on disjunction in very short poetry and uh yeah the disjunctive dragonfly it's published by red moon press and that's the one it wouldn't take too much human skin because it's pretty small and uh so you might be so able to yeah. graft that yeah you know i might be able to put it on my body so but <laughs> tattoo it i don't know ah. but uh yeah that, i think that's the one i'd have to go with 
at least right now. I'm sure like in a year or so I'll be done with it, but right now. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> well, I think that's about it. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so <laughs> much. It was so great. Yes. And so again, the slingshot vignettes, alien Buddha press, uh, you can get it on the big board book website. There'll be a link. Um, you're also findable on social media, Twitter, Instagram, all of those fun things. I'll post yeah, links, yeah. but definitely check this book out. Whether you're from Western Pennsylvania, Northern Appalachia, have ever been to the woods or afraid of the woods, like the woods, <laughs> heard of high bun before this podcast or before you picked up this book, um, definitely check it out. Our next episode will eventually happen and it'll be about something. Our homepage where you can find new and old episodes is gonnadiepodcast.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, we're still on Spotify, but you don't have to use it because we're also on Google Podcasts, Audible, Stitcher, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, and I don't remember to put it on Mixcloud, but there are some episodes on Mixcloud, some classic episodes on Mixcloud. Actually, maybe that's what I should do. I should make that like the greatest hits KTEL platform. But we'll also take effort and I would have to upload them. So it's not going to happen. But anyway, follow us on Twitter at, at going to die podcast. And of course, we're all going to die is on Facebook, other toxic platform. Uh, special <laughs> thanks to Andrew Fox for our lovely theme music. And thank you again, Tony Burfield, so much for doing this. It's been so good talking to you after 15 years, a lot of years, 20 years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of years. Yeah. My pleasure, and it's so good. Thank you so much. Thank you. Later, meets. Ah!